podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct the week's parsha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. We are delighted that our guest on this week's Between the Lines podcast is Dr. David Frankel, who has served as a senior Bible lecturer at the Schechter Institute of Jewish Studies since 1992. Dr. Frankel earned his PhD at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem under the direction of Professor Moshe Weinfeld. His publications include The Murmuring Stories of the Priestly School and the Land of Canaan and the Destiny of Israel. From 1991 to 1996, Rabbi Dr. David Frankel was Rabbi of Congregation Shevat Achim in Gilo in Jerusalem. Rabbi Frankel, a huge welcome back to Between the Lines podcast. This week, we look forward to hearing your insightful thoughts around Toldot. Thank you very much, Simon. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here and to participate in this great project. So Parashat Toldot relates the famous story of Jacob's deception of his father Isaac. At the behest of his mother Rebekah, Jacob dresses up in goatskins and presents himself to his near-blind father as the beloved firstborn Esau. After extracting from Isaac the coveted blessing, Jacob, again at the behest of his mother, flees to Rebekah's family in Haran in order to avoid the vengeance of his angry brother. However, before Jacob sets off on his way, he actually gets a second blessing from his father, whom he had just duped. Rebekah, according to the story, turns to Isaac and tells him that she can hardly tolerate Esau's Canaanite wives and that her life would be pointless if Jacob, too, married women of that sort. In response, Isaac calls Jacob warns him not to marry Canaanites, sends him off to Padan Aram to marry into his mother's family, and gives him the blessings of land and fertility. This is the famous story of the stealing of the birthright through deception. The sequence of events, as I have just represented it, is somewhat puzzling. Rebecca's main concern seems to be to save Jacob's life from his brother Esau, who, as she hears, is plotting to kill her beloved son in revenge. Why, then, does she say nothing of this to her husband Isaac? Why does she focus instead on the issue of Jacob's marriage to potentially bad wives? Isaac knew full well that Jacob was the one who stole the blessing from his brother Esau. So what would be the point of Rebekah hiding the fact that Esau is now plotting revenge? The issue raised by Rebekah, that of Jacob's potential marriage to a local Canaanite woman, seems to come out of nowhere. It is also somewhat strange that when Isaac calls his son in, to tell him not to marry a Canaanite woman, 
he says nothing about the fact that Jacob had just stolen the blessing that was designated for Esau. That act not only violated the rights of Esau, Isaac's most beloved son, but it also diminished the dignity of Isaac himself. Not only does Isaac fail to reprimand Jacob for his act of deception, he goes on to give him a second blessing. We may also wonder why this second blessing was at all deemed necessary. Isn't one blessing per child sufficient? This is one of many difficulties that plagues Parashat Toldot. Now, the difficulties that I have raised about the second blessing can be answered in potentially meaningful ways through all sorts of creative literary interpretations. Still, the analysis offered by the higher critical approach to biblical analysis is eye-opening and I believe engenders new insights and important meanings. According to the critical analysis, the story that we have in Parashat Toldot is not really one story about two blessings given to Jacob, but two different stories about one blessing. The key to the source-critical understanding is the transition from Rebekah's charge to Jacob to flee and save his life, and her then turning to Isaac and complaining about the local wives. This is found, if you look in the book of Genesis, at the end of chapter 27, verses 42 to 45. And I would encourage you to open your Bibles here and follow the analysis of the text that I'm now going to present. Again, I ask, why is Rebecca suddenly bringing up this issue that the text tells us? Rebecca says, Esau had married these Canaanite women, and if Jacob is going to do the same, my life is worth nothing. Why does she raise this issue? Why does she bring this out of nowhere? Actually, Rebecca's reference to this issue probably follows directly after the last verses of chapter 26. If we look at chapter 26, which is the chapter that appears right before the beginning of our story of the stealing of the blessing, we can see how it connects directly to Rebecca's turning to Isaac. So I'm going to read those last verses of chapter 26, and then the verses about Rebecca's speaking to Isaac. At the end of chapter 26, verses 34 to 35, the text says, When Esau was 40 years old, he took to wife Judith, daughter of Be'eri the Hittite, and Basmat, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a source of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. Thus ends chapter 26. But we could continue directly in chapter 27, verse 46, and it would read then, So Rebekah said to Isaac, 
I am disgusted with my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries a Hittite woman like these from amongst the native women, what good will life be to me? So Isaac sent for Jacob and blessed him. This would be an independent story on its own, having nothing to do with the story of how Isaac was duped by Jacob dressing up as if he was Esau. In this version of the story, which scholars assign to the priestly source, Jacob never deceived Isaac. The entire episode of Genesis 27, the entire story of the deception of Isaac, simply was not a part of the priestly story. Jacob was given the blessing, not because he duped his father, but because the older brother, Esau, proved himself unworthy by marrying Canaanite women. He did not seek to usurp his elder brother. Similarly, Jacob went off on his journey, this time at the behest of his father, not behind his father's back in order to marry, not in flight from the possible repercussions of a severe trespass. Jacob, in sum, is a much less problematic character in this narrative. Isaac is also a less compromised and a more dignified character. He blesses Jacob of his own volition, fully aware of whom he was blessing and why. In light of this analysis, we can assume that this priestly version of the tradition was an improved version, perhaps even to supplant the first version, which presented both Isaac and Jacob in a negative light. Isaac preferred Esau because of Esau being somebody who just gave him meat. He didn't have the right sense of who is worthy of a blessing and who is not. And Jacob is certainly presented in a negative light as somebody who stole the blessing, who stole the birthright. And here we have what would appear to be an improved addition or version of the same story where Jacob is blessed because he deserves it. Now, an authentic Jewish hermeneutic of the biblical text proceeds not only from the text in its present form, but it can also proceed from an appreciation of different sources. In other words, what I'd like to argue is that a good Jewish way of interpreting biblical texts does not have to read the text in its final form. We can read it, break it down into its sources, and then find meaning in the different versions that once existed separately and interpret those rather than the final form which combined those stories into one continuous narrative. If we do that, we can say that the text in its earlier form presents us with two types of Jacob. 
There's the Jacob who flees, who is a runner, and there is a more dignified Jacob. Jacob of the first story flees. He flees for his life from his brother Esau, and he will later flee from the house of Laban. As a runner who is focused on his own survival, he has little time to make long-term plans. Jacob will eventually marry the daughters of Laban. But this, like so much else in his life, is neither anticipated nor planned in advance. Life is what happens to Jacob as he's on the run. The Jacob of the second story of the priestly version is a very different Jacob. This Jacob doesn't live with a sense of fear. His sense of confidence allows him to leave the issue of blessing in the hands of God. He doesn't have to steal it. He doesn't have to use trickery to get it. When he goes off to Padanaram, he doesn't fear and he doesn't run in flight. He goes with purpose. Isaac blessed him and told him to go and marry into his mother's family. And so this Jacob is a man who is not fleeing, but is on a mission. His life is not a series of reactions and ad hoc responses to unanticipated circumstances, but is a life that is future-oriented and goal-oriented. Without developing this dichotomy in too much detail, I would like to suggest that these two portrayals of Jacob are also two portrayals of how the Jewish people, Jacob as a personification of Israel, two ways that the people of Israel often live and behave. Much of our life as a people throughout our history has been characterized by fear and flight. We have often lived the life of the wandering Aramean. Much of our history happened to us, and what we did is we reacted on an ad hoc basis in order to survive. Our focus was on physical survival, and that very focus hampered our ability to forge long-term goals for our future. Sadly, I believe that this situation continues in many parts of contemporary Jewry, both in the state of Israel and in the larger Jewish community. Many of us still live with a focus on fear for our very physical survival and focused on thoughts of how we can escape threats. And that focus takes away energy from focusing on forging our long-term positive goals. The pattern of fear and flight applies not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual and intellectual realm. Our sense of vulnerability, of lack of confidence, has caused us to run not only from one land to another, but also from spiritual and intellectual challenges that challenge our faith. 
Many Jewish communities have preferred to shun the universal quest for knowledge, characterized by the university, for example, and to insulate themselves in the traditional teachings of the past. This, too, is a kind of survival tactic that is based in fear. Though it is understandable, it is not very dignified. The learning it produces helps perhaps to preserve the treasures of the past, but offers little substance for the challenges of the future. Parashat Toldot shows us that there is another model for Jacob Israel. We need not always run in fear. Ultimately, fear and evasion breed more fear and evasion. It is often better to take up the second model of Jacob, to confront our future openly with a feeling of security and confidence. And this may allow us to grow both in wisdom and to move forward with a sense of purpose and clear direction. Thank you very much. Rabbi Frankel, thank you so much for sharing those wonderful thoughts and particularly how biblical criticism can illuminate key lessons for not only the text, but as you've clearly um, spelled out for us, our ongoing journey in relationship with the text. I wondered how you see the journeys that we're familiar with for Jacob and how they fit into an overall very strong theme throughout Bereshit of the journeys that we see there. The journeys of Jacob can be really interpreted on many different levels. I would say that they could be interpreted, I would mention at least two basic layers or approaches by which they can be understood. One is Jacob as a personification of the heroic individual. Jacob is the person who basically does some kind of initial crime, flees to a foreign land, amasses wealth and power, and ultimately returns to his homeland and establishes himself as an accomplished hero. So there is a kind of rite of passage that he goes through from being a lowly, almost criminal character, going through struggles, fleeing, struggling in a foreign land, and finally returning and returning triumphant. And this is the way a lot of heroes are presented. And I can just mention Moses, who also starts with a crime. He kills the Egyptian. He flees. He flees to a foreign land. There he works and establishes himself and marries and becomes a shepherd. And eventually he goes back to become a great leader. So there's a pattern there of the hero who goes through trials and tribulations and ultimately becomes the great figure that he is. But on another level, I would say that the Jacob journeys and the whole cycle can also be seen as the story of the nation, because the nation of Israel 
to a great extent, is also a story of journeys. Israel also leaves the homeland out of distress, famine, goes to a foreign land, faces trials and tribulations, becomes a nation, and finally goes on a return journey to finally emerge as a great nation, again, after building itself up through all these trials and tribulations. So the Jacob story and his journeys through life, to a great extent, are a personification or a, a representation in noose, a small package, so to speak, of the national story. It is a story of running, of trials and tribulations, of sins, of criminal acts, but eventually of overcoming all the obstacles and returning home to become something great. Rabbi Frankel, again, thank you hugely for joining Between the Lines and for your support of Jewish Quest. You will know that Jewish Quest has really come out of and been inspired by the life and work of Rabbi Dr. Louis Jacobs. I really wonder whether you might share some thoughts about what he has meant to your own scholarship and rabbinate. Well, thank you for that question. I would say that Louis Jacobs, for me personally, was a tremendously influential figure in my early quest for Jewish authenticity and the search for truth and the possibility of merging that with a commitment to Jewish values and Jewish religion. As a person who was brought up in an Orthodox environment, I found myself in my early 20s in a tremendous conflict with biblical studies, and not only biblical studies, other scientific pursuits. And there were very, very few people who I found could address these issues and conflicts in a clear and accessible and intelligible way with true integrity. There was really almost nobody who could bridge that gap. And for me, reading a Jewish theology, Reason to Believe, and many other works of Louis Jacobs, they were really the only clearly written and accessible and honest grappling that was available and is still available. And while being open to critical thinking was also sensitive to the eternal truths of religion. So for me, his synthesis was a lifesaver, really one of the few people who allowed me to find a certain amount of peace and to merge scientific truth and the quest for truth with commitment to a religious way of life. Rabbi Frankel, thank you so much for exploring Toldot with us today, for all of your insights and scholarship. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And of course, do find out more about all of our exciting content, which we're growing with you at our mothership, jewishquest.org. We look forward very much to seeing you again next week.